Greetings and welcome to Let's Talk About Books, baby, where we will be talking with your favorite LGBTQ authors. This is Anita Kelly, and I have three guests today, um, and I will introduce them. Uh, my first guest is Adrian Shanker, and Adrian is an award-winning activist and organizer whose career has centered on advancing progress for the LGBT community. He has worked as an arts fundraiser, a labor organizer, and a marketing manager, and he served as president of Equality Pennsylvania for three years before founding the Bradbury Sullivan LGBT Community Center in Allentown, Pennsylvania, where he serves as the executive director. Welcome, Adrian. So great to be here with you today. Um, and our second guest is Liz Margulies. Um, Liz is the founder and executive director of the National LGBT Cancer Network. It's the only U.S. program that focuses exclusively on the needs of LG LGBT people with cancer and those at risk. Liz is a co-author of multiple peer-reviewed articles, several based on the network's original research on LGBT cancer survivors. After having developed a nationally recognized cultural competence training curriculum for health and social service providers, Liz travels the country training large hospital systems and speaking at conferences. As a result of her work for the LGBT community, Liz was chosen as one of the out 100 in 2014. Welcome, Liz. Thank you. And we have Dr. Kat Carrick. Uh, Kat is a social worker, activist, and educator based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She has been involved in both clinical and community social work across the service line, including grassroots activism, community mental health, foster care, inpatient psychiatric care, private practice, hospice care, domestic violence, trauma, and hospital administration. As part of the core faculty for the LGBTQ Health Policy and Practice Graduate Certificate Program at George Washington University, she developed the Rural Health and Lesbian Health Course Curriculum, supported program development, and established student scholarships with her grant writing skills. She is an adjunct faculty member for the School of Social Work at Simmons University. She also serves on the peer review committee for the annual conference for GLMA, Health Professionals Advancing LGBT Equality. Her passion is teaching healthcare professionals how to provide more culturally responsive care to the LGBT community. She earned a doctorate in social work and a doctoral certificate in women, gender, and sexuality from the University of Pittsburgh, a master's in clinical social work from Smith College, and a bachelor's in psychology from Chatham University. Welcome, Kat. Hi. Good evening, all. Thank you all again for being with us today. Um, and we will jump right in um, and talk about... Um, this new publication called Bodies and Barriers, Queer Activists on Health. So Adrian, how did you come to edit this work and become involved in all of this? So Bodies and Barriers, Queer Activists on Health is, uh, is an edited collection of essays by queer activists around the world that 
tell our stories about the healthcare experiences that we as LGBT people have had. And the hope is that our, our experiences, our past experiences can inform uh, a better future when it comes to uh, health equity and health access for LGBT people. I started working on this for two reasons. One, when, when I was doing uh, some graduate work at George Washington University, uh, I was really surprised that I could not find a lot of literature published by LGBT people about our health. So much of it was published about us by, uh, by researchers, by clinicians, um, but, but not LGBT people telling our own stories in our own words. So it was a book that I needed. And then I actually had a negative experience um, accessing uh, healthcare, high quality healthcare myself. I was um, trying to receive a baseline um, skin cancer screening uh, from a dermatologist. And at every step of the way, I felt that the care that the doctor was providing wasn't care for people like me. And uh, from the restrictive intake forms to the uh, debate on the television in the waiting room about gay rights while I was waiting for my appointment to start, uh, to the brazen disinterest from the clinician himself. I felt that it was just not an experience of healthcare that, uh, th that, that we should look towards and that there was a lot of room for growth. So uh, I decided to, to start putting this book together because I had heard so many similar stories from friends, from activist colleagues around the country that I thought this is really important to start telling our stories in ways that hopefully the healthcare professionals in our lives and the future healthcare professionals that will lead us uh, for the next, uh, the next couple decades will, um, will hear these stories and will take action to improve health equity. I'm, I am so glad that, that you took it upon yourself to do this, Adrian. It's an important um, read for everyone. Um, and I'm glad that we are having the opportunity to, to get the word out and have uh, people learn about it. Um, how did you go about selecting the works for this publication? Um, did you put out a call for proposals? Um, or did you already know people and, and um, go to them? Bodies and Barriers includes essays by 26 activists from around the world. Uh, and some, some activists in the book are, uh, you know, uh, well-known people in our movement uh, who have been on the front lines of fighting for LGBT health and LGBT rights for, for decades. And other people are emerging activists um, for whom this might be their first uh, published work, uh, as well as, um, you know, earlier in their, in their activist career. Uh, but everyone's telling important stories. And the way that I kind of compiled uh, this book um, was to try to curate a conversation that I thought healthcare professionals needed to hear. Uh, and really, I want to encourage that, you know, folks buy a copy of the book for themselves and one for their doctor, uh, because uh, their doctor really needs one. You know, our, our healthcare professionals in our lives really need to, to see this information. So the, the book takes us on a journey through, through the LGBT lifespan, starting with youth, uh, uh, young adults, middle-aged adults, and older adults. So one of the first chapters in the book is by Elisa Bowman, who writes about navigating pediatric care for transgender youth. Um, uh, there's chapters along the way, like the chapter by, uh, by, by Liz, who will speak in a little bit, uh, about navigating um, through you know, cancer uh, care, uh, cancer treatment, and, uh, and kind of the, the society in which uh, LGBT people live. Uh, as we as we get older, and then there's 
the, the book concludes with a section about the health needs of older adults, um, which, uh, which Kat was one of the contributors to. The final chapter in the book is about uh, bereavement support. So it really presents the LGBT lifespan of birth through death, that throughout our lives, LGBT people experience health challenges pervasively. They affect every part of our body, every part of our lives. Uh, there, is not, uh, there is not a single um, instance of, of health uh, and health care where LGBT people are faring better than the majority population. And, and that's what I mean when I say this is pervasive. So this book takes us on a journey, and the contributing authors play a really important role in making sure that we can uh, talk about many, many, many issues from, uh, you know, from uh, sex education in schools um, to uh, tobacco use and, uh, and uh, substance issues around alcohol and other drugs to uh, thinking about um, uh, experiences for bisexual and transgender people encountering uh, in their encounters with doctors uh, to issues that are specifically relevant for older adults, for caregivers of older adults, uh, and and in uh, bereavement situations. Yeah, it really is a like I would say a comprehensive primer for all kinds of health professionals, um, and I would recommend that not only like uh, physical health uh, professionals, but mental health professionals uh, would really benefit from this. So um, let's. Let's jump in and talk about um, one of the selections. Um, Liz, tell us about about your submission on cancer care and treatment. Um, I started out as, um, I'm trained as a social worker, and I spent most of my career with a private practice as a psychotherapist. And so I did think of myself as an activist at that time, as I like to say, I was changing the world one soul at a time. I came of age during the anti-psychiatry movement, and it was immediately understood that psychology is not science. In a similar way, it turns out that cancer care is not just science, but it's very gendered care, and how people do has to do with how they are treated in many ways other than what their scans say and what their blood work says. So during the time I was just a psychotherapist, because I do still have a practice on the side, I had four really, really close friends um, get ovarian cancer, and over time, all of them died. I'm and so I sorry. thought, like, thank you. Like, what are the odds of this? Like, am I just, like, I just choose my friends poorly. But it turns out that LGBT people as a group have far greater cancer risks and lower screening rates, and then fare poorer in cancer treatment. And as a social worker, like I'm always interested by a new subject area or a new problem. And the more I read about cancer disparities in our community, the more I felt committed to do something about it. So I knew nothing about anything except being a social worker um, with a private practice. So I went to Barnes and Noble and sat in the aisle for a few weekends, had to start a nonprofit and began talking to people and ultimately started the National LGBT Cancer Network in 2007. And I'm still um, the executive director there. Can you tell us about that network and, and what you do, like what the network does? Um, interestingly, we do not provide direct services. Um, it's worth going to our website if you have any interest at all, and it's cancer-network.org. 
org. And um, our mission has three parts. First, it's really important to me to educate the LGBT community about our increased cancer risks and the importance of screening and early detection. Going along with that, we have put together a directory of um, LGBT welcoming free or low-cost cancer screening facilities around the country, and our goal is to have one within driving or subway distance of everybody. Second part of our mission is to train healthcare providers to offer more um, safe and welcoming care to LGBT people, and that's when we put together a very comprehensive cultural competence training toolkit with six videos and activities, etc., and we travel around the country um, training large hospital systems. And the third part is to advocate for LGBT inclusion in national cancer organizations, research, and the media. Because as Adrian said, there's a lot of research out there, but it's not by us and it's often not for us. So when people are studying cervical cancer, I want to make sure, or cervical cancer screening, that they're including transgender men in that study, for example. So our website is one of the primary ways that we provide information to both providers and people with cancer and those interested in the topic at all. And, and Liz, why do you think that the National Cancer Register does not collect info on sexual orientation and gender identity? So let me just go back a second, because I'm not sure um, all your listeners know that that's so. The the, every time there is a tumor, it is sent to a tumor registry. And there's there, a lot of information goes with that tumor sample. And it's critical. It's through that, for example, that we know that white women are far more likely to be diagnosed with breast cancer, but black women are more likely to die from it. If we didn't have race as one of the variables in there, we would not be able to not say that. And so while I can tell you that LGBT people use tobacco products, that's smoking cigarettes and vaping, at 50% higher rates than the general population, I cannot actually tell you for sure that we have even one more incident of lung cancer or any of the other kinds of cancer that smoking can lead to, because this information is not collected. Why is it not collected? I don't think people really cared. I think, you know, it's, we're just another like throwaway population, but we are working very hard to get that information in there. So how can our listeners make that change? How, what can they do to um, bring that to the attention of the National Count Cancer Registry? I'm not sure that that's where your listeners should start. I mean, change is so slow on um, those kinds of things, and they will agonize over every single word and how it's done. But I would encourage everybody instead to just do what they can to take care of their own bodies. And if you have somebody that you love, make sure that they take care of their bodies as well. Stay up to date with your cancer screenings and if and make sure you find a doctor or healthcare professional that you can bring your whole self into treatment with because LGBT people fare worse after cancer treatment, and not, again, because our scans or our blood work is different, but because we didn't feel heard or seen or respected. People who, cancer can be really scary, and it is many times fatal or nearly so, and so the risk of coming out um, is far harder when you feel like your life is on the line and it depends on the goodwill of your healthcare provider. 
So we found that many people who'd been out their whole lives leapt back into the closet when they had a cancer diagnosis because where they lived, maybe the only good hospital was a Catholic one. And as one gay man said, I feared that the homophobic doctor would leave one of my lesions behind or the homophobic nurse would make me wait longer for my pain meds. And so we've seen many, it's terrible. And as we know, many people in our community have been rejected from their families of origin because of their sexual orientation and or gender identity. And we'd like to think that when there's a crisis like this coronavirus crisis, that like you let bygones be bygones. But also in our research, and you can see this whole report on the website, there was a woman who called her mother the night before her cancer surgery, and they had been estranged. And the mother told her, I hope you die in surgery. I wish you were never born. So cancer does not heal old family rifts. You know, um, I'm going to hop over to Kat because, um, Kat, um, the piece that you submitted for um, Bodies and Barriers um, is about older lesbians in rural settings. Is that right? That's right. Actually, um, much like Liz, I'm a social worker trained, and I came out as an activist because of the HIV crisis in the 80s and 90s. Um, so I was involved with ACT UP, CRY OUT Pittsburgh, and Lesbian Avengers in Pittsburgh um, helped to organize pride parades here in the city and got involved with the Gay and Lesbian Community Center. I was co-chair there for 12 years or more. Um, but then my activism started growing as I started aging and I started realizing I could do just as much activism in boardrooms or in writing grants to help fund nonprofits or to be on the boards that are deciding who's going to give the money out to nonprofit organizations. Um, but my my rural life has always been one foot in and one foot out. Um, I, I went to high school and I was milking 72 cows a day. Um, and so I'm well aware of the isolation that happens in rural communities. And then I was teaching down in Arkansas and I've taught in rural Pennsylvania and in Maryland and in rural Massachusetts. And so some of the themes that I wrote about were the fact that the isolation happens, you know, it's, you might have to drive two hours in order to have a community or sense of community. Um, that also implies that you have the money to be able to do that. Um, as an older lesbian, then you also have to think in terms of if you're going to host an event, are there going to be accommodations for somebody so that they're not risking their life driving home if they've been drinking or drugging or that they just can't see so well late at night on rural roads? Mm-hmm. Um, I was, it's similar to what Liz was just talking about, um, about people uh, uh, fearful of retribution or retaliation um, from their mm-hmm. health care provider. You actually wrote about this in um, your piece um, that that seems to be more prevalent, perhaps, in, in rural areas. Oh, yes, because it's not just your health care provider. It might be you're afraid to, to tell your doctor because they'll put it down in your notes and your second cousin is the one who's going to be the billing clerk and then suddenly you're out into the family um and so there's lots more layers to safety and secrecy about being out i would host things down in arkansas and for folks that lived there their whole life um i knew two thousand people by the time i left after four years 
And often the questions I would be asked were like, is there going to be a gay flag, gay pride flag flying outside? Are people in the neighborhood going to know? Um, are people going to have stickers on their cars? Um, so there was a lot of fear about safety, even in coming to an area um, and, and being outed by somebody else, um, realizing the complications of, you know, having children or custody issues going on, realizing that church communities could be very um, hostile and that they could be ostracized from their support networks. Um, and, and what part do you think, Kat, does... Um or if at all, internalized homophobia play in, um, you know, the, the aspect of people being fearful of coming out and, um, you know, being upfront with their health care provider? Well, I kind of think it's a little bit of both. Um, it is not just internalized homophobia, but it's also the, co the social context that they're living in. Mm -hmm. And so... You know, if you're constantly hearing from the pulpit that you're, Jesus hates you and you're going to go to hell, if you're constantly hearing from families derogatory remarks, if, you're, if you've never seen anybody who's like you or know anybody who's out, then it can be a very isolating experience. So it's a combination, I think, of internalized homophobia, but also the reality of what happens when we live in a heterosexist society. All the more reason why we need to get the word out about bodies and barriers um, to break down, you know, those uh, homophobic barriers um, internalized and, and from the outside. Yes. Um, so um, what... And maybe any any one of you three feel free to jump in. Um, but how do you think our current administration has impacted um, LGBTQ uh, health issues and concerns? Uh, I think that you know we've had a, we've had years of forward movement where uh, our community from you know, the, the, for decades was advancing LGBT progress. And in just a couple years, uh, our federal government has, has walked us backwards in some pretty fast ways. And yet the resiliency of our community is still strong. And I think that's what's important. I mean, we certainly have a federal administration that is, that is um, turning their back on LGBT health every step of the way. But we also have uh, community activists around our country that are standing up and fighting back and demanding, uh, demanding health equity. We have, we have hospitals that are, that are doing the right thing. We have medical schools that are starting to teach uh, more about LGBT health than they have in the past. Um, we have state governments that are doing incredible work that, uh, to, to advance uh, health equity. So I, I, I do agree that our federal administration is taking us backward. But I also think that as a movement, we still have opportunities to move forward, uh, you know, even in the face of some drastic, uh, horrible things that the Trump administration has done, including, um, you know, uh, 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 trying to change rules around uh, health care discrimination to trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act, which uh, is the law that um, 
that says that people living with HIV are, you know, is, that that's not a pre-existing condition that can prevent you from getting health care. So, you know, we know that, that the health policies that were in place before this administration were on the right track. They weren't perfect, but they're on the right track. We know this administration's taking us backwards. And we also know that there's lots of activists throughout our movement that are, that are standing strong in the face of that and continuing to fight for a high quality of health for all of us. Thank you, Adrian. Um, Kat, I'm going to throw this question to you. Um, so Adrian just talked about our administration taking us backwards. Um, and one of the things that I was noticing um, was that uh, the younger generation of women um, were actually um, demanding in many instances um, the, the same pay as men and they were actually receiving it um, and um, do you think that uh, with this administration we are moving backward in in that realm that that pay gap is widening um, where before it was coming a little bit closer together well I think there's a lot of things like I, I agree with that Adrian said that in the 30 years that I've been an activist I it seems like we have quickly undone so much hard work, um, but that there's still opportunities. And I think that it is about the gender gap, especially for lesbians, um, because we live on the margins. Um, the older lesbians did not argue, I think, yeah. with, with even being able to negotiate salaries. And, you know, you're just so grateful to have a paycheck that you, you do a lot of free work. Um, and I, I think that's true, too, for LGBT communities. I don't think it's just in heterosexual communities. Um, I, I see a lot of the, the work that's done by women that's not acknowledged, and yet um, it's assumed that they're going to pick that up. So I do think there's a gender wage gap that, that I'm hoping the younger generation continues the fight for. Um, but I do see Trump administration in terms of dismantling the Office for Women, dismantling all of the funding for LGBT research. Uh, a lot of the, the stuff that was in the works through the Obama administration has just been halted. And I think we're going to have to use some of the older activists that survived the Reagan administration and learning how to like change grant writing and to be more aware of adding things like sexual orientation, gender identity, expression and identity um, to, to their research studies to collect that data. Yeah, you're right. That needs uh, to happen. Anita, can I just add that uh, I think it's important that obviously this, this administration is, is so uh, taking us back in such a, an awful way, but that um, LGBT activists have been fighting for a high quality of health with uh, Republican and Democratic presidents uh, standing in the way in different in different instances. Um, you, you know there were there were many challenges with uh, President Clinton's approach to LGBT health. There were even worse challenges with uh, President Reagan's approach to LGBT health. But uh, uh, and and even President Obama, who who certainly took our movement forward in so many ways and and it did expand LGBT rights and LGBT health in a variety. Uh, in a variety of important ways, um, you know, also approved a, uh, you know, a blood ban that, that still uh, was unscientific and, and limited blood donations to 
gay and bisexual men after a year of celibacy. So that's you know, still in we, place, right? Uh, well, well, now now it's three months. Okay. Yeah, now, now it's three months. months. But 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 my point is that it's you know LGBT activists have had to fight against uh, presidents of both administrations, governors, senators of both parties, uh, and uh, um, no no political group has has fully taken on the effort of ensuring a high quality of health for all people, like Healthy People 2020 suggests. It's not a it, it, there are certainly are, are politicians that have been better than others, but um, but we've had to fight hard against people of both parties. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Thank you, Adrian. Um, and Liz, you mentioned before that I think you said about 50 percent of LGBT, LGBT people um, are smoking at one point in their lives. Is that right? No, that I, 50 was the right number, but that's not what it referred to. Okay. Our rates are 50% higher oh, than okay. the general population. And, and and do you think that, yeah. is that um, uh, as equal for um, alcohol and other drugs, um, or is it just tobacco products? I don't think our rates are 50% higher for the others, but I mean, if we look at how is it that we have greater cancer risks because our bodies are not different from our heterosexual sisters and brothers. Mm -hmm. It is mainly because of the behaviors of like smoking and drinking and drug use that are higher in this community as a result of the stigma and discrimination that people live with. There's a direct line between being bullied and taking up smoking. Mm -hmm. And bars, as we know, have been one of the main gathering places, especially in smaller towns where they don't have community centers like Adrian's to have other places to meet. Mm -hmm. okay. So it's directly a result of what it's like to try to live as lesbian, gay, bisexual, and or transgender in this culture. Okay. And, and Adrian, um, at the center, what, uh, what do you guys do to promote smoking cessation um, and, and other forms of, um, you know, uh, nicotine intake? Bradbury Sullivan Center in Allentown provides a number of programs around helping LGBT people uh, provide uh, to provide LGBT people with resources about how to quit smoking. Um, that includes uh, helping people get connected to the tobacco free quit line one eight hundred quit now, where people can get in Pennsylvania they can get uh, eight weeks of free phone counseling and nicotine replacement therapy. The exact amount that people get varies by state, but in Pennsylvania, it's eight weeks, um, to, uh, to helping to, um, you know, normalize the conversation about tobacco prevention in the LGBT community, reminding people that tobacco is an LGBT issue. Um, remember that, you know, the first LGBT centers were gay bars, and uh, that, uh, that the places where people have always congregated, where LGBT people have found safety and security, uh, where we found, um, you know, friends and relationships. Um, they've literally been smoke-filled rooms at many points in our in our movement's history, uh, you know, and um, that, that, that includes many pride festivals that have been very smoky for a long time. Uh, so part of what we also do is we try to work with, with uh, LGBT organizations across our state to go smoke-free. Um, we've had two gay bars go smoke-free in the past couple years in, in Pennsylvania. 14 pride festivals have adopted smoke-free policies. And this is actually a critical form of activism is saying, uh, saying to our LGBT community, the organizations that serve us, 
um, that we need to say no to the tobacco industry. We need to say no to tobacco sponsorship, no to tobacco sales, and we have to, to say no to tobacco consumption in our queer spaces. Um, that's about providing uh, air that's breathable for all of us. It's about making our Pride Festival spaces where uh, LGBT parents can bring their, their children. Um, it's about um, you know making sure that uh, people in our community who have respiratory challenges um, can 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 access safe queer spaces. And I think especially in this moment, as we're all thinking about coronavirus nineteen, and and you know uh, Liz can speak more to this, but as we're all talking about coronavirus nineteen, it's incredibly important that LGBT people talk about quitting smoking in this moment. Um, and there perhaps has never been a more important moment. Uh, to talk, to have that conversation about the higher rates of smoking in our community, a coping mechanism, right? We're not blaming the smokers. We're blaming the society that, that, has, um, that has led us to health disparities. And it's time to fight back against them. Liz, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. I think what Adrian's referring to is that um, it's not that the virus is going to single us out, COVID-19 I'm referring to here, but that we are at greater risk for um, complications from it because, as we've said, as a group, we have higher tobacco use rates, and this is um, a respiratory illness. And so they found that whether we know, whether smokers are at greater risk or not, I'm not exactly sure, but that smokers have fared worse once contracting the virus. Um, also, people who are immunocompromised, so LGBT people with cancer, are also at greater risk. People who have HIV that is not being treated well. Um, and we also have many other kind of chronic illnesses that are higher in our population. Um, lesbians are more likely to have for poor or fair health and multiple chronic conditions, aside from heavy drinking and heavy smoking compared with straight and cisgender women, and bisexual women are more likely to have multiple chronic conditions, severe psychological distress, and engage in heavy drinking and moderate smoking. And um, all of these mean that if we get the coronavirus, we're likely to have worse outcomes. And again, we're also a population with poorer access to care. I understand that now treatment for the coronavirus, including testing, will be free, even so you don't need to have insurance and there will be no co-pays. But our people have avoided um, engaging with the healthcare system because of the previous negative experiences or fear discrimination. Okay. And, and Kat, um, do you think that the uh, COVID-19 virus has had um, an impact on older rural lesbians? Oh, I, I think without a doubt, you know, um, if you're looking in terms of poverty factors impacting the ability to even have health care, mm -hmm. um, being able to have insurance, being able to have access to drive to a doctor, right? So the large cities are being overwhelmed and inundated with cases, uh, let alone more rural areas that don't necessarily have the wherewithal to be able to provide proper care. Um, one of the things as an activist that I really have been involved with heavily is that creation of alcohol-free events. So being able to have places that aren't having smoke, that are smoke-free, that don't have alcohol as the gathering issue um, is going to be crucial as a community once we 
once we survive the coronavirus. And, and I'm not sure if the rates of alcohol and other drug abuse are higher in rural communities, but I do know that access to treatment is um, sometimes almost impossible in rural communities. Um, right. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, with the uh, advent of telehealth, uh, I think that's really um, hopefully going to have a positive impact. And, and I think the majority, if not all of us, have gone in that direction because of uh, COVID-19. But I think telehealth is also experiencing the same problems that we're experiencing with, um, you know, the sudden switch to online education. Um, you know, I've been teaching online for many years, but for the community college that I uh, work at, they're literally struggling trying to put classes up right now. And so, you know, how you connect to people, whether or not you have reliable internet, whether or not you have dial-in, dial-up still, um, rural communities are not as equipped to be able to use telemedicine as urban communities. Right, right, unless and, you have a major and, hospital system. And telehealth still requires cultural and medical competency around LGBT health needs, right? So primary care clinicians, still need to understand PrEP, uh, you know, uh, preventative HIV medicine. Um, they still need to understand the importance of encouraging certain cancer screenings that people in the LGBT community aren't getting at the same rates as the majority population. Uh, clinicians still need to understand some of the barriers to care that transgender people and uh, bisexual people in our community have faced for, for years. And, um, Telehealth might remove uh, one barrier, which is the experience in the waiting room, but uh, there's many other barriers that still exist, and it's just as important as with in-person care that clinicians uh, provide culturally and medically competent care. I'd like to add something, this is Liz, here that just hasn't been spoken about in terms of uh, the current political climate, and that's that new policies have been enacted at the federal level and have... Um, that make it easier for healthcare providers to refuse treatment based on their religious or moral beliefs. So true. Yeah. So that's right. And, and I don't think most um, cisgender heterosexual people know this, but when it applies to you as it does to us, we know that we always have to be careful because even if we come down with COVID-19, we can be refused care in some places. And that's, I, this is Kat, I just wanted to add on to that. That's one of the reasons why having advanced medical directives or power of attorney is so important, especially for LGBT people, because legally, as a social worker in a hospital system, I would have to contact their legal next of kin. So oftentimes I was contacting biological family that might have kicked them out of their house when they were a teenager and they hadn't seen for 25 years. You know, um, so making sure that you have your paperwork in order in case you get COVID seems kind of difficult, but it's something we need to really consider. It's a sad necessity and a sad reality of, of yeah. where we're living. So, um, Adrian, you co-authored a piece um, in Bodies and Barriers on um, smoking, correct? Yes, uh, uh, a chapter about 
kind of the history of um, smoking in our in our community, in our LGBT community, and how queer activists can respond to that. Okay. And, and what does the data show us um, between um, the smoking rates between um, LGBT uh, transitional age youth and non-LGBT transitional age youth? Is there a difference? And, and not only with smoking, but with vaping, which seems to be very popular with transitional age youth. So LGBT youth in that age group, so roughly 18 to 24, um, are, are one of the highest uh, populations of smokers within the LGBT community. Um, also, uh, one of those highest populations would also be transgender people. And so, you know, we know that that parts of the LGBT community are affected more than others, especially parts of the LGBT community that are experiencing, uh, you know, greater challenges with uh, harassment, uh, bullying, violence, discrimination, um, and we know that transitional age youth experience a lot of those things. So smoking rates are higher because smoking is a coping mechanism, um, but we need to do a better job of, of, of preventing uh, people from starting to smoke in that age group, and that's, that's one of the challenges for, for queer health activism that I think is incredibly important. Okay, and, and along with that, Liz, um you mentioned in your chapter um, that uh, LGBT folks show worse outcomes to treatment, um, and and you mentioned that that's due to system bias um, and understanding. Can you explain that a little bit? Talk about that. What we want is for um, providers to welcome the whole support system in. The assumption, for example, if someone has cancer is that their caregiver will either be their spouse or their parents. And in our research, we asked people, who do you consider part of your support system? We asked um, cancer survivors, LGBT cancer survivors. And the list invariably included ex-lovers, friends, a whole group of people, their dog, their therapist, et cetera. And the healthcare system is not set up like this. If someone has breast cancer, you can go to the caregiver group, but you might be the only woman in it if you're queer. And so you go through the treatment, and even if you do everything that's right and all the reports and scans say you're fine, the experience is extra draining. Um, I also talked to my chapter about how lesbians feel about the color pink, like the pinking of breast cancer. Um, not First of all, not everybody who gets breast cancer is a woman. Mm -hmm. um, trans men can get breast cancer. And as you can imagine, the pinking thing is really anathema to them. Yes. And it, everyone likes to think that cancer care is science, but it's really very gendered. And in fact, if someone has breast or ovarian or uterine cancer, they're very likely treated in a place that's supposed to be like super welcoming. And so they call it the women's cancer center. But when the trans man walks in with his girlfriend, everybody assumes that she's the patient and he's the caregiver. And so we're working hard to try to take all the gendered nuances of cancer treatment out of it. Yeah, I think that's so important. And um, I was actually um, at a, 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 a speaking event where um, a um, 
transgender person. Uh, I had never considered that before. Um, it was actually um, male to female um, stood up and, and spoke out about having uh, breast cancer. Um, and I, I just never even considered it. And it really made me stop and, and pause and think about what that was like for her to have to go through that. Uh, it, it was very painful, very painful experience, um, you know, on top of being diagnosed with breast cancer. Well, I think it's a general population that most people aren't even aware that cis men can get cancer, yeah. breast cancer. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And especially with that pinking of, of the symbol, you know, what the Susan Coleman found. And it's not something that is welcoming to anybody without thinking in terms of gender. No, you're right. And, and I also think like pink is like, I associate it with little girls. So I think it it has this, um, you know, infantilizing. Yes, kind of, yeah, um, or you know, diminutive uh, uh, impact, and 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 I wonder what kind of role that plays on on research. Um, I'd like to bring up another subject rather than answer that question directly, if I can. Sure. Um, and other. Um, lesbians have and bisexual women also have complained about the pressure to have reconstruction so if someone is going to have a double mastectomy you have to decide early on like before it starts whether you're going to want to have reconstruction or not and many lesbians are choosing not to have reconstruction because it requires multiple surgeries in addition to the cancer removal which means longer healing time and more risk for infection but also more lesbians do not feel like they're femaleness or femininity even is defined by having breasts and it's very hard for people to find a doctor who will give them a good flat closure rather than just scar you up and we'll just take them off and there'll be you know skin hanging off but a nice clean flat look and there's a whole movement now of people who call themselves something like flat toppers there are different groups with different names Mm -hmm. and so we're fighting to have this be offered to women um, and men, obviously, I mean, for trans men, this can be an opportunity for top surgery that they wouldn't have been able to find. But that's rare that that happens. But to offer this as a healthy and, dare I say it, sexy um, alternative, a, a reasonable option mm-hmm. if you have to have a mastectomy. Yeah, no, that's a, a very good point. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, so, um, Adrian, you also... Uh, wrote a chapter about uh, a uh, campaign that you did called That Ass Though. Is that correct? It is, yes. All yeah. right. So tell yeah. us about That Ass Though. Well, it's it's really what we're talking about is anal health. And, um, uh, and a lot of times, you know, people think about their health and the last thing that they might think about is anal health because, um, frankly, nobody talks about it. Um, uh, doctors don't talk about it. Community activists don't talk about it. Community members don't think about it. Um, uh, you know, in most cities in America, you can look up online and find uh, gynecologists that that operates in that community, but. Uh, Everybody has an anus, and it's very hard to find a doctor that will uh, th- that that specializes in the health of uh, in our anal health. And for 
uh, for gay and bi men and trans women in particular, but actually for for anyone who's a receptive partner in anal sex, there's a really important need to understand um, you know, anal health related issues. So this campaign that I wrote about that ask though was promoting anal pap tests in particular for gay and bisexual men. Um, but right now, for example, um, we have a hepatitis A outbreak in Pennsylvania and in many states. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, anal health is back on the radar. In, in one state, um, in, uh, in, in Illinois, the city of Chicago had a very large uh, outbreak. And uh, the Chicago Department of Public Health's answer was to try to put hand-washing stations in the gay bars. And for those listeners that don't know how hep A is spread, it's you know, it's, it's spread essentially through oral fecal contact. It's one of the reasons that we have signs in, in um, restrooms and in, in, uh, in public restaurants saying to wash your hands before returning to work uh, is to help prevent Hep A. And so the Chicago Department of Public Health just assumed, oh, well, people aren't washing their hands. We know that there's a lot of people in the gay community getting Hep A, uh, contracting Hep A, but we don't understand why uh, it must be hand washing. So obviously uh, the response from the gay community was um, uh, one giant eye roll. Um, and in Pennsylvania, we launched a campaign called Taste of Peaches. It was an emoji campaign um, to encourage people to get the vaccine, the hepatitis A vaccine, which is um, you know, pretty available, but it wasn't FDA approved till 1999. So anyone over the age of 25 was frankly unlikely to have received it. Um, and unless they served in the military or the Peace Corps, um, there were very few instances where someone would have gotten it if they're, if, you know, if they're older than, if, if they uh, got most of their vaccines before it was approved. So, uh, so we've launched this campaign and are running that. And so anal health is a really important thing to talk about in the LGBT community because it's tied to our sexual health. Um, it's, it's related to our, you know, the longevity of our lives. And it's an important thing to discuss. And, you know, we have to uh, shine a light where the sun don't shine sometimes <laughs> to make sure that, that uh, we can achieve a high quality of health. Oh, you're right, Adrian. And, and I can imagine, especially for, um, you know, younger uh, gay men, that that might be um, an uncomfortable topic to talk about with their doctor, with their healthcare professional. Um, so there's a quote in the in in this book by contributing author Sean Strube, uh, who's one of the early leaders of ACT UP New York during the early days of the AIDS epidemic. And Sean says that stigma is about um, you know other people making a, uh, a deciding about your moral worth. So and, and other people and and so for LGBT people accessing care. Uh, that one of the reasons we don't access care is because we're afraid of the stigma. One thing that Bodies and Barriers does is it puts it puts our stories on the table, and it says to our to the doctors, nurses, counselors, social workers, the healthcare professionals in our lives, please listen to our stories, understand the experiences of your patients. Don't ask us to teach you how to provide care to us. Learn about our experiences and take it upon yourself to develop the expertise that you need so that you can provide us with a high quality of health. And that's, that's the easiest summary of the book that I can share is that LGBT patient narratives, our healthcare experiences matter, and we really, really, really need uh, health policymakers, uh, healthcare providers, and students in health professions to read our stories, to listen to them, and to learn from them. You know, it's a really important message, Adrian, and sad, 
that uh, we have to be the ones to educate our medical professionals. But um, I really uh, kudos to you for taking on this uh, project and putting this together because it, it's really um, an excellent collection of of you know healthcare workers, uh, you know writings and and life life works really. Um, so thank you. Um, so I'm going to throw out a question uh, to the group. So how do you think um, this COVID virus is impacting our own community? Um, and do you think that we will see a larger impact than um, in, I'll say, the more mainstream community um, or no? This is Liz. Um, I think it's having a huge impact that is um, different perhaps than the mainstream population. We are already a people who are prone to being socially isolated and being um, mandated to stay in our homes and stay away from our people, I think is especially hard for those who start out by being socially isolated. I also have great concerns for our queer youth who may be at home with their families in a less than welcoming environment. And to be all day in a hostile environment is really, it might be good for their physical health, but it's terrible for their mental health. No, you're so right. And I did see that many of the colleges around the nation were, um, you know, making uh, alternative arrangements for LGBT students who, you know, did not feel safe going home and, and spending the rest of the semester at home. Yeah, I want to piggyback on that. This is Kat. Uh, that I think this is also going to bring about a, a higher consciousness about why we need to have universal health care. Um, that the inequality in our society really is playing out, not necessarily just in terms of who's getting sick, but in terms of whether or not who's going to survive, you know. Um, we knew that during the AIDS crisis that there were certain targeted populations that were big spendable populations according to the Reagan administration. You know, I also think that this whole understanding of whether or not politicians could vote on healthcare or vote on employment or vote on, you know, a basic universal income, when are we going to get to the consciousness that we don't vote on human rights? Right, exactly. Yep, I, I totally agree. It, it should be a given. And, and not something um, the uh, majority of people vote on uh, the human rights of, you know, um, uh, a marginalized population. All right. So um, we are almost out of time, but I do want to go around and see if anyone has any parting words uh, they'd like to share with our listeners. Um, this is Liz. I'd like to say that, like, in conclusion, um, about all that we've said about how hard it is to stay healthy as queer people and how many barriers there are to taking good care of our bodies, I think that good health is a radical act, that sometimes it feels like we were not meant to survive, and I want to encourage everybody to use all the pride in themselves that they can muster 
to take really good care of yourself, both your mental health and your physical health. And this is Kat. I actually think that resiliency is the key. You know, it's part of why I've been such a community activist over my life work because, you know, the more connected you are, the more supported you are, the more people that you have in your network, the higher likelihood you're going to be able to have somebody who can bring you groceries, who can help to get you to your doctor's appointment, who can pick up the phone and just talk to you. Um, and so building the, and maintaining those social networks were crucial for our community for the, you know, since, since I've been an activist for the past 30 years. And I think it's going to be even more important with COVID response. And uh, I'll just close by saying that um, the essays and bodies and barriers and the unheard stories of LGBT people when it comes to our experiences trying to access healthcare make it abundantly clear that LGBT people experience health disparities pervasively throughout our lives, affecting every single part of our body. Um, the question is not uh, if we experience uh, challenges with healthcare. The question is what we're going to do about it. Um, and there's nothing biological about LGBT people that suggests that we should uh, experience uh, lesser quality of health than the majority population. These are social problems and cultural problems because our community has such a long and storied history of bias, discrimination, um, uh, and, uh, and negative health care. Um, that's why we don't have health equity. These are fixable problems. We just have to work for it. And we have to demand better of our health care professionals, demand better of the government, demand better of uh, you know, medical schools and, and schools that teach health uh, professions to prepare the next generation of health leaders to provide high quality care for all of us. That's Health equity is the dream, and we, we can get there if we work for it. Amen, brother. <laughs> um, Adrian, where would our listeners go to obtain a copy of Bodies and Barriers, Queer Activists on Health? So uh, I always want to recommend that people first start with their favorite local bookstore, especially right now bookstores are struggling. Many are placing orders online or through curbside pickup. So start with your favorite local bookstore. Many of them have the ability to get Bodies and Barriers Square Access on Health. If they don't have it or if you don't have a local bookstore that's open or available right now, uh, it is available through all online book resellers um, and, and through PM Press. Uh, .org, uh, and they're actually currently running a sale on the book with 40% off with the code SOLIDARITY because during the coronavirus uh, pandemic, we're all in this together. So um, Bodies and Barriers, Queer Activists on Health, uh, please get a copy and learn more about how you can help to improve health outcomes for all of us. All right. Thank you, Adrian, Liz, and Kat for being with us tonight. I really appreciate it. Um, it's been a pleasure talking with you and uh, learning more about LGBTQ healthcare. Um, I'm Anita Kelly, and that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for joining Liz Talk About Books, baby. And until next time, may your journey be lighthearted and peace be plenty.